Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hi, Aaron. Hey. Uh, we have a great show this week. Uh, I got to talk to Stephanie Clifford, who is a longtime business media reporter. Uh, she was formerly a reporter at the New York Times, where she reported on courthouses. And that was how she ended up covering the Martin Shkreli trial. Martin Shkreli being the uh, so-called disgraced pharma bro. <laughs> uh, and another reporter was also reporting on that trial and they became friendly. Uh, that reporter ended up pursuing a romantic relationship with Martin Shkreli um, after he was sentenced uh, to prison time. And Stephanie wrote this article about it in L. Uh, I feel like it uh, went as deep into the internet as an article can go. You probably saw it. If you didn't see it, uh, check it out. But I really wanted to talk to her about it. And I've been following her career for a long time. And she does tons of uh, really interesting work. It was a great conversation. I'm glad you got her, man, because I feel like uh, a couple of times a year, I think that story came out on like a Sunday night. And I feel like maybe twice, three times a year, there's like uh I will go onto the internet and the my entire internet is talking about one article that happened with this one. And I feel like most of the response to it was just people being like, what, what now? What? Uh, so there were lots of questions, Aaron, and I'm glad you got to ask them, Stephanie. I saw that article in many newsletters, uh, quite a few of them sent out by uh, MailChimp. MailChimp is the best way to do an email newsletter and they help make the show possible. So thank you to them. And now here's Aaron with Stephanie Clifford. Welcome, Stephanie Clifford. Thank you. I really want to talk to you about this uh, story you did involving Martin Shkreli, but maybe we can work our way forward to that moment. So sure. I understand that some of the backdrop to getting this story was that you were sitting in on the original Martin Shkreli trials. Where were you in your career at that point, And how did you end up there in your career? 
Sure. So I was at the Times then, at the New York Times. I was a reporter covering courthouses. And I covered the Shkreli, all the arraignments and so forth, leading up to the trial and then the full Shkreli trial as well. The courthouse beat, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like a kind of a good umbrella to catch a lot of pretty varied stories. It's like the courthouse isn't really a genre unto itself. It's like... (laughs) No, that's exactly it. And I think that's what people didn't really realize about the courthouse beat because like you can cover anything. Like I was covering animal rights. I was covering family court. I was covering custody and the death penalty and fraud trials like Shkreli's and like crazy fraudsters who were, you know, bilking investors out of millions of dollars. Like you get to do so much interesting stuff and there's so many good documents. Like I love a good document. So for someone who's never reported from a courthouse, are you like just looking at the docket every day and going like, circling it like you're movie hopping you're like a little of column a a little column b yeah like that's a big part of it i was at the times you ask to be switched every couple of years and you say what you want to be switched to you talk to the editor but then you're just dropped in with next to no training uh so suddenly working out of the brooklyn federal courthouse like my wi-fi wasn't working my phone wasn't working and my editor is texting me saying like you need to go cover an arraignment and i was like yes And then like on my phone, I had to Google what is an arraignment because I just had no idea. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, a lot of it is figuring out what's going to be interesting. So you source up with prosecutors, you source up with defense lawyers, with judges to get a sense of, you know, I don't know, out of Brooklyn Fed, I would say there are probably 30 cases being heard a day out of the state courthouse, 100, to figure out which of those are worth covering and which might lead to bigger stories. For someone picking up a story at the stage of day one of a trial? Like, where is that as a place to enter a story? And where are you expecting it to get by the time you write about it? If you start on day one of a trial, there will usually have been a year or two of hearings and motions before that. Mm. So if you come in fresh on day one without having read the pleadings, without having read the previous transcripts or the motions or having talked to the lawyers to understand beyond the obvious criminal charges in a case, like what are some of the interesting things in this case? Is there a First Amendment issue? Is there an issue on how they might tell the jury to follow instructions? Anything you can pull out for a bigger story. I was always thinking... A friend of mine, Peter Latman, who's a great courts reporter, told me, think of it like a sports game. It's you and it's all your competitors. You're all watching the same game. Like it's your job to come up with the most interesting take for your readers. And with a lot of opportunities, like what are you picking from the vast sea of possibilities of stories to do from the courthouse? For me, it's usually a human element. I'm also a novelist. I love people who make interesting decisions, or at least decisions that most of us wouldn't make. And I love to understand why they do that, especially when it defies logic or goes against sort of moral norms. And so I loved understanding defendants start to finish and why, you know, how they went from a small scale thing like bagging heroin or whatever in an apartment to like running this gang that killed dozens of people. I just love to see how it snowballs and I love their decisions along the way and how their personality changes and how they justify it to themselves because they always think they're doing the right thing. They always have some justification for what it is. And I just think that's so fascinating. The other thing that I like to do is I think that's one area where 
journalists have a real effect on on policies. So if prosecutors are overstepping their bounds, um, I'm thinking of a story I did about how they were reading emails between uh, defendants and their lawyers in prison, which they're not supposed to do. So like things like that, they're just like, this is something they shouldn't be doing. How um, how did you come to journalism in the first place? What led you down this path? This strange path. <laughs> I was one of those kids who was super obsessed with journalism from like age five. We got the New York Times at home. We got the Seattle Times. We got the Seattle PI. I'm from Seattle, obviously. And reading of the morning paper was just a big thing in our house. And at dinner, we would discuss the articles. So from age five, I was like writing newsletters about what we were going to have for dinner and what the weather was that day. I did the high school paper. I did the college paper. And then I started at a Time Inc. magazine. It was 2000. So it was called E-Company Now! Exclamation point. I, if you had just dropped E-Company Now on me, I would have said that's like the magazine in a movie that uh, came out in 2000. <laughs> I know. It was out of San Francisco. I mean, it was great. They, they We had great writers, great editors. So I started as a fact checker there, which was a, one of the best ways to start in journalism because you learn how to report a long story and how like what things people get wrong. So just give me a little bit more like background on eCompany Now. On like, eCompany Now. So it was a timing. It was sort of like a little sister publication to Fortune. Yeah. So a bunch of Fortune editors came out to the West Coast. And it was like, when I started, I want to say this is right, that they had a launch party at the baseball park with bare naked ladies for this magazine. Like there was just, wow. yeah. And there were like specialty cocktails named after, you know, I'm sure they're named after like the venture capital. And <laughs> <laughs> and whatnot. Um, but there were also, there were really good reporters and writers there. And even though I was a fact checker, which is the entry level job, they encouraged the fact checkers to write. So I got a chance to write and I got a chance more importantly to be edited by these very good editors who were like, you know, the first thing I wrote was drivel and 30 times too long. And they redline it and they say, like, go try it again. And so you're, you're really learning on the job. Coming of age, as it were, during a great flourishing of San Francisco capital, what, what did you kind of learn in that period as a business reporter? And what did you take forward from I mean, it was an era with a very different technology press to technology industry relationship. Mm -hmm. What I learned the most from there, my editor, Jim Ailey, he's now at uh, Bloomberg Business Week, and he just like had so much fun with it. He took chances with everything. He had fun with the headlines. He did like, it was the early days of um, travel sites. And so I remember he had two staff writers do a race to Las Vegas, like one using Orbitz, one using Expedia, I think. So it was just like this idea that business journalism, yes, it's serious. Yes, you have to be right on the numbers, but it can also be really fun and engaging and interesting. And I think when I talk to younger people today, I just talked to people from my high school about journalism and you know, business journalism isn't kind of the sexy entry point. People want to start in politics or in overseas stuff. And it's such good training grounds because you have to get it right. You have like this whole army of PR people who are going to ream you if you get a tiny thing wrong. You're going to have arguments with them anyway. And so it teaches you how to be right, how to read financial documents, how to stand up for yourself when the PR people do try to argue out of things. Um, it teaches you that companies lie and how to, <laughs> how to try to see through that. So I think it's actually a, a great starting point. When did uh, novel writing also become part of your uh, regimen in life? That was later on. So I, um, I stayed at eCompany for two years. I then made the 
really bad decision to go to New York and freelance, uh, which, sorry, there's an airplane coming overhead. Um, Why was moving to New York to freelance a bad idea? Because I mean, it's so hard to support yourself as a freelancer, and especially when you're, I was, what, 23, 24, and I thought I could go, and like I just had no idea how hard it would be. And it was also, you know, that was right when the economy was tanking. So it was very hard to get writing assignments. And it was a really hard period in my life, honestly. I felt for the first time directionless and incredibly depressed and like I had no worth. And it was just a very dark, dark time. So I eventually got a job after applying <laughs> applied to every job in New York that there was. I applied to one at uh, Condé Nast Traveler where you had to be fluent in French. And I spoke like high school level French, but I hadn't spoken it in years. And so I went to the interview and the, the woman started the interview in French. And I was like, oh, shit. And the only tense I could recall was the plus perfect. And so everything I was saying, so I, I was just like making up stuff because I she asked if I had been to France and I was like, yes, I had been to France. And then I was like, <laughs> I had been to France before I had been visiting in the, like, the whole thing was a disaster. I got turned down from footwear news. Like I could not get a job. Uh, finally, I got a job at Inc. Magazine, which is focused on entrepreneurs and small businesses. And that, that was a turning point. It was fabulous. Tell me about like Inc. during that period. And like, I mean, that's kind of a like, uh, by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs kind of mag. It's not like a like we're gonna like uh, uncover fraud kind of magazine. Yeah, no, it's scrappy and it's very good at profiles. Like you're right that it's not. It doesn't look too much at fraud. It's sort of how to how to build an entrepreneurial life and what that kind of life might look like. But again, my editor there, Jane Berenson, was incredible and so creative. And so like I would go to her. I was doing a story on a breakup of a partnership at a company called D'Artagnan. They make like fancy meats. And I went to her and I was like, I want to do it like the pinter play and run it backwards. And she was like, yeah, try it. And it didn't work. But like, I loved that she was like, yeah, just go for it. And the editors there were fantastic. So I learned how to structure a story, how to write a feature, you know, what makes a story interesting. Um, again, usually the, the human element or something somewhat universal about it. And there was just, you know, there weren't that many of us. So there was just so much room to write and we needed content. So we, we got a lot of assignments, which is great. When you're trying to profile someone, whether it's a business person who's only giving you a few hours of their time or it's someone who's in a courtroom where you're never really seeing them in their natural environment, like... How do you try to summon a real person out of a completely artificial experience with them? Mm. Some of it is reading up a lot in advance. I mean, the courtroom thing is a little bit different, so I'll answer that in a second. For an exec who you might have three hours with, if that, it's reading and reporting in advance to get a sense from people who'd worked for him or her, um, from speeches they've given, from high school yearbooks, anything like that about who they kind of were before they were in this position of power. And I think that tends to be a good way in. Some people remain pretty similar. Some people change drastically. That way you can ask good questions and you can also sense, I think, after some practice and watching them carefully when they are not giving you honest answers. And that can be part of the write-up as well. Court is different. Defendants almost never testify. They rarely give interviews. But 
in trials and in documents that both sides file with the court, you get a good sense of their bios, their backgrounds, what other people's experiences with them are. And, you know, you'll have somebody where for a profile, if you call up somebody and ask, you know, I want to write about this businessman, can you give me 20 minutes? They might give you 20 minutes. In court, you're hearing for like maybe four or five hours from a single witness about what this person is like. So you, there's lots of good nuggets in there. And then you try to put it together and see what fits and what doesn't fit. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You um, recently wrote about Mackenzie Scott, formerly Mackenzie Bezos. Um, Did you at some point think you might get her participation in the story or were you starting from zero on that? I was starting from zero. I I tried, but I thought it was highly unlikely given that she's given, I believe, two interviews. Yeah. She gave one to Vogue and one to... I think she gave like one interview about her last book, which was in 2013 or something. So she's very, very private. So very uphill situation from the very beginning. What's your strategy there for, I'm taking on something that I know to be difficult and I know I'm going to have like a limited amount. 
Where do you even start putting together a profile like that? I called around to people at Seattle Foundations, people who were active in the Seattle philanthropy world who'd been quoted about it to see kind of had she been a part of this before. I found out she wasn't, which is interesting. Then I started thinking about her as an author. So I reached out to, I honestly went through her acknowledgments in her books and reached out to everybody she mentioned in the acknowledgments. I reached out to her agents, to her publishers, to anybody in, in the literary world who had mentioned her or mentioned working with her. I reached out to people who were editing, who were kind of higher up in the um, publishing companies at the time that her books were acquired and sold. Uh, with Amazon, she was obviously Jeff Bezos's wife, but she was also one of the early employees at Amazon. And Amazon, luckily, there are a bunch of kind of like Amazon lore hunters online who are like, these are the first 10 employees at Amazon. No, these are the first 10 employees at Amazon. So I reached out to, I think, the first 20 employees at Amazon. I figured out where her kids went to school. I started reaching out to parents from there who would have had kids in, in the same classes. And then, of course, everybody you talk to, you say, is there anybody else I should talk to? And often there will be. And... She clearly does not want any of these people talking to you. Right. You know, person 17 in her book acknowledgments, who's close enough to her to get in the book acknowledgments. What's your pitch to this person? And what's the stakes for someone like that to talk? Um, I say I'm trying to do a profile of Mackenzie Scott. Here are some of the stories I've done. This is a pretty straight ahead profile. Mm -hmm. I want to get a sense of her as a philanthropist and what might drive her and what might shape her. Um, I also want to get a sense of her as a novelist, where I think she has been overlooked. I read both of her novels. I think they're good. And if I had to guess, I think people responded to me, if they did, many did not, because I wanted to get a sense of her out from Jeff Bezos's shadow. He's such a well-known character. He's a difficult character. Um, and people genuinely seem to like her. And I think people wanted that known. So I think they were kind of willing, you know, this wasn't a takedown. This was a, a look at who this very rich, very influential woman is. Um, so I think some of the people who dealt with her early on, who were impressed by how modest she was, how little she, you know, she never mentioned that she was married to Jeff Bezos. She never mentioned Amazon. Um, she clearly wanted to be evaluated in her own right. And I think they they were willing to talk about that. And, you know, I, I don't think she's going to go after the 17th person in her book acknowledgements. <laughs> like her closer friends were just flat out no's or didn't respond. Yeah. How much of your opinion in a story like that sort of evolves as you're doing the story? Like, did your take on Mackenzie Scott change the more you heard about her or more was it, especially with a mysterious person like that, where it's like, yeah. you're not going to find her like, 700 page diary of this era. It's going to be a scant amount of information. Yeah. Um, with somebody like her, I had little impression of her going in. Mm -hmm. I knew, you know, there are wives of billionaires who are very high profile, who are going around to all these events. I knew she didn't do that. But other than that, I knew very little. And so I started with her books. I actually, the one thing that puzzled me which I thought was an interesting reporting challenge because I was reading about, I think, again, as I said, I think early life obviously is formative and defines a lot of who you are. And so she was from San Francisco. She went to a fancy boarding school called Hotchkiss. And then she mentioned in one interview for her book that she was at Princeton on scholarship and she had to pay her way through Princeton. And I was like, 
it doesn't make sense that she would go from San Francisco at that time was such a wealthy town. Hotchkiss was a super high end school. Like, and I was like, there's some missing piece. And so I just kept looking through records from that time. I was looking through like housing documents and court documents and everything I could find. And I couldn't piece together like what had happened between high school and college. And finally, I don't even remember how I found it, but finally I was like, oh my God, her dad, like (laughs) her dad had this uh, sort of monetary explosion where he was investigated by the SEC. Um, They had to pay a lot of their money. They clearly, their financial fortunes really changed. And so that helped me understand her, I think a lot more because she had gone from being super rich. I mean, I looked at pictures on Zillow of the house she lived in in San Francisco, and it's this, like, gigantic mansion in this very fancy neighborhood. And then suddenly they were living in, like, basically a condo in Florida. So the idea that she had already had this roller coaster with money explains, I think, a little more why she was willing to take risks with Amazon and maybe why she was not as taken with money as a lot of people who come into that kind of wealth would be. Speaking of uh, risk, we touched briefly on freelancing, but who published the Mackenzie Scott piece? That was uh, Marker by Medium. So you're doing a story for Marker. How much time can you invest in like looking into Mackenzie Scott's dad's tax returns and sort of really like going deep into a case like this? How do you balance that? Like, how do you budget? your life across all these stories, both as a product of of time and getting paid for them. Yeah. I mean, the freelance work is not lucrative, so I can't think of it in that way because if I did, I would make myself insane. Mm -hmm. Um, The way I structure it is I try to retain film rights on all of my stories and those can sell for enough that it's not a ton, but it's enough that with that, plus the freelancing, plus I'm working on my next novel now, like I can make it work. I have Mm -hmm. two little kids. I've got a family to support. So it's hardly, uh, it's not not the easiest way to make money. But um, I think one thing I learned at the Times, I went from a magazine, Inc., to the Times, and it's the first time I had a beat. And you just have to like churn through stuff so fast there that I just learned you just go and you fill up every hour you can with reporting. And so I don't, you know, I finished a story when it's finished. Mm-hmm. Um, like that Mackenzie Scott one, I remember it was like nights and weekends, me just online every which way with like the county clerk in Palm Beach trying to figure <laughs> out records. Um, it's not about sort of budgeting time. I think I know more or less how much time something like that will take, but it has to feel finished and the best version of a story that I can do for me. Is that movie rights question in your mind when you evaluate a story? Like, you know, is this something that could be adapted? It can be, yeah. But it's not all. Like, if it can be, that's a nice plus. But uh, if it's not, I mean, I do a ton of criminal justice stories that are just not amenable to adaptation. So that's fine, too. It's not entirely predictable, either. Like, if you had just shown me the topics for all the stories you've done, I wouldn't have said the one about Martin Shkreli is going to be the one that's all over the internet. But there is a sort of grand unpredictability about viral nonfiction narrative, I feel. Oh my God, totally. And and other ones that you think are going to like, you're like, this is going to blow up the world. And it's like, oh, I had four readers. <laughs> like, so. um, okay, so let's, let's talk about that story. Um, yeah. How long have you been working on it at the time you published it? Um, I actually reported and wrote it very, very fast because I wanted to get it in the March issue of Elle. So that meant 
because of magazine lead times that it had to be done by end of a draft by late November. And it was only in early November that Christie agreed to talk to me. But I had been pursuing it for about a year. I knew Christy because we both covered courts. I saw her covering the Shkreli trial and becoming more involved with him. I didn't know what the relationship was, but I was, you know, clearly something more than journalist source was going on there. And then I heard from another source in January or so that they were in a serious relationship. And so I shot her a note and I said, if and when you want to talk about this, I'd love to talk. And she said, nope. And I was like, okay, I'll keep checking in. <laughs> and so I kept checking in. And it, I think she finally decided to talk, A, because she'd gone, and one thing I wanted to get across in this story is that she went from being somebody who covered courts to somebody who thought about courts in a completely different way because she was in love with the defendant. She was in love with somebody who was in prison. So she'd become an advocate on Twitter and on other social media platforms for criminal justice reform but wasn't able to say, I'm Martin Shkreli's girlfriend, and this is why I'm coming at this so hard from this point of view. Um, so I think she just wanted to be public about that, and she wanted to be public about the relationship with her friends and family and people she knew, so she didn't have to feel like she was living this weird double life. Did any part of you, when she said yes, go, oh, wow, great for me, but bad decision for her? Like, did you question her decision at all, I guess? I wondered why she wanted to do it. And so I talked it through with her and I wanted to, you know, there was a world in which I could have done a gotcha piece. There was a world in which I could have kind of promised her that this would be a great opportunity for her to tell her story. And it, it is, but I also wanted to be clear on what the repercussions might be, that if she was public with this, especially with such a hated character like Shkreli, she was going to get a lot of blowback. So... I think as long, especially with somebody like her, who who was a journalist, still works in journalism, understands what I'm doing, understands what the blowback could be, you have to let them make their decisions. And, you know, with other sources I've written about, I'm thinking about an Atlantic story I did in August, where it was a family who had been accused of abusing their baby, and the dad was arrested for homicide and spent a year and a half in jail. And so that family, I sat with them, obviously, to do the interviews. Both parents talked about wanting to commit suicide. And when the time came to write it up, I called them and I was like, I'm going through everything in the story with you. Like, I want to be clear that, like, when people Google your name, they'll see that you may have tried to commit suicide. Like, is that okay with you? And they said yes. So I think your job as a journalist, particularly with people who are in vulnerable situations or people who are not used to press, is to explain what the fallout may be. And in, in thinking of another Wired story about several victims of an online cyber stalker, uh, teenage girls who sent nude photos that were then passed around. And in that, one of the victims speaking to me for the first time was like, you know what, I want to use my full name in this. And she had been so fragile when I interviewed her. She had been in tears, still shaking uh, several years later. And I said, like, I think that's brave and wonderful. I also think that's going to bring a lot of, like, you're going to get Twitter DMs and online harassment, and this may kind of re-victimize you. And I want you to, I was like, if you insist on it, I will do it, but I want you to be careful. So I think we have some responsibility to protect and warn our sources. With Christy, after I wrote the story, obviously I didn't let her see it, but I called her and went through 
both the facts in the story and my assertions. Like I wrote in the story, I thought she was doing this basically to get Shkreli back. And I said that to her, which was, as you can imagine, a bit of an awkward, <laughs> awkward conversation. <laughs> but she was like, okay, like, yeah, I, you know, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I'm not sure that's how I'd put it, but I am okay with you putting that in. Okay, so to even sort of arrive at the idea of getting Shkreli back, you have to have already had the rug pull, uh, which this very bizarre, but like ultimately kind of was making me feel good story. Like I was kind of like, wow, like it's, you know, tough to find love out there. Some people have to find it with Martin Shkreli. <laughs> There's this Kaiser Soze moment where he sends a statement through his lawyer that is basically breaking up with her. Can you describe what it was like when you got that? And did you see that coming at all? What I knew about Shkreli was a lot of from what Christy had told me, but also from what I'd observed in the courtroom. And I knew he didn't want her to do this story. He likes to be unexpected and he likes to be provocative and he likes... I think, to make people feel bad. So I had no idea what to expect. I was, you know, half of me was like, maybe he'll do a full interview with me. I have no idea. Uh, So I wrote to him in prison, explaining that I knew he didn't want the story done, but it was happening. And here were some of the areas I was covering. And did he have a comment? And I got a call from his lawyer. And I thought, I don't know, you never know what a lawyer is going to say when they call. And she was like, so I've been told that Martin Shkreli got a letter from you and you're writing a story. And she was like, so let me read you his comment. And she read it to me and I just went like, ah, because <laughs> it was so cold. And I asked her, do you know what the story is about? And she said, no. And I explained it and she just laughed. And she was like, that's the comment. And it just seemed calculated to hurt Christy. And uh, like he hates journalists. So it also like, I mean, it was kind of clever, diabolically clever in that because it put me in the situation of having to essentially break up with Christy for him. So I had to call her, obviously, to give her the statement. And I called her on video chat. And I had a few other questions first. And then I said, I got a statement from Martin Shkreli. And she just looked so bright-eyed that I was like, oh, my God, I, like, I don't want to do this. Uh, but I read it. And she immediately was sort of blinking and looking upset. And she said something like, that's sweet. And I was like... Is it sweet? Like, what What does it mean? And then she started crying and she was like, it means, you know, we don't have a future together. And, you you know, you have to deliver bad news as a journalist. I think that's the first time I've ever broken up with somebody <laughs> in a story. That moment in the story, I sort of flashed through everything and I went, oh, was this all a, a master manipulation? of a journalist whose original relationship to Shkreli was covering him. And then I kind of went, wow, like the manipulation almost extends to this story. How did you deal with that? Like, how did you deal with the very premise of the story being in some ways a, a piece of theater orchestrated by Martin Shkreli? I felt that for the story to work, I had to take Christy at her word and mm-hmm. let withhold judgment and let her explain why she did what she did. Because whether she was manipulated or not, she was still actively making 
big choices and choices that a lot of us would not make to leave her marriage, to leave her apartment, to quit her job. And I wanted to get at, you know, I could have gone at it a different way. I could have perhaps looked at Martin Shkreli's visitor logs from the prison and seen were other women visiting him, and if so, who. Um, but to me, that wasn't. You just got rid of one of my follow-up questions. <laughs> 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 um, to me, that wasn't really the interesting part of the story. And I wanted yeah. to stay zoomed in on Christy and on her emotional state because I thought that was the most interesting thing. Because I, I didn't know her well, but I knew her from covering courts. And she was this very sensible, smart, aggressive, ambitious reporter. And so particularly for somebody like that to make decisions like this is so fascinating. I did have that moment of like, is this all made up? And so I got documents and other background information to confirm that indeed what he was telling her was what he was telling her. Again, I don't know what his actual feelings are, but I saw some of that. And so I was fully aware that I could be a target of manipulation as well. And perhaps this was a scheme that either Shkreli had cooked up or Shkreli and Christie had cooked up. So I, I thought about many variations on that and then decided that in the end, just presenting it in a minor key and letting it speak for itself was probably the best approach. Well, you know, seeing another journalist go through what happens in this story, I wonder like, have there been times in your own career where you felt your personal connection to the source of the story made it difficult for you to write the story? Um, yeah, I'm thinking about a story I wrote for Marie Claire this spring about a woman named Makita Davis. She had been in prison for seven and a half years after a bar fight, and that she was in prison for seven and a half years after a bar fight like indicates how messed up many aspects of our system are. She's Black, she's a mom, and so it was following her for a full year as she got out of prison to show what that really looks like, that a lot of people think reentry is like, okay, like you're on the bus home and everything's good. And in fact, rebuilding your life when, when you have this giant break with your life is really difficult. And with her, she was my age. She's like funny. She's great. And just so much of me was rooting for her that, you know, half of me wanted to, to be like, here's what you should do. Make this choice. Don't do this, do this instead. And, and like, I just had to shut up and listen and not you know, even things like she had a grandson, her daughter had a son during the reporting of the story. And I I was like, I feel like I should send her I have baby clothes because uh, my, my little one's four. Um, so I had some baby clothes and I was like, should I send them to her? And then I was like, no, 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 I can't do that. But I just wanted her to succeed so badly and I wanted her to find her footing so much. In the most recent um, set of stories you've done, you wrote about her sort of first day or life outside of prison. You wrote this story, I think it was a Marshall Project Atlantic, the one about um, parents who are accused of, falsely accused of abuse based on sort of medical diagnosis. And you did this cyber stalking story. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, in these criminal justice uh, stories, are you figuring out the topic and then finding the people to write about or vice versa? Were you looking for a person who was going to be newly released from prison for that story? Yeah. So it depends on the story. That story, yes. I wanted yeah. to find a woman who was going to be newly released from prison, which is 
weirdly much harder than it seems like it should be. Yeah, I was going to ask, how, how, how do you, I, I know there are many people who are going to be newly released from prison, but how do you find just one? I went through several programs that work within prison. So I knew them from my time, you know, just from covering criminal justice. And I said, like, is there anybody in who you're working with or who you know of who's going to get out soon, who might be up for talking? I don't know. I reached out to probably 25 organizations. You can email the wardens, but of course, they're not going to be helpful. Um, I looked some family groups, uh, families against mandatory minimums, things like that, family support groups for people getting out of prison. So uh, Makita, she was suggested by the Bedford Hills College that she attended. And then I went into the prison to meet her the first time and make sure she understood what this would mean and that it would mean that I would be like tagging along to her birthday party and her like that I would be riding with her on the car ride home when she was probably in a pretty vulnerable state. And I just wanted to make sure that, again, she understood that this isn't just like a couple interviews, but I'm going to be like showing up in her life at, at all these times. And she did, and she wanted to do it. And she was really open and really thoughtful. So she turned out to be a great person to write about for that. Her, her first time out doesn't go very well. Does that kind of an agreement get stressed or strained as her situation gets worse and things don't go as planned? Like, do people still want you around in bad times? I, I can totally see how it would. She she was fine with having me yeah. come because she wanted to show what this was really like. And she had known, you know, friends of hers had left prison before she did. And she knew that it was really hard for them. And I think she wanted to show the reality of it. So she was very good about letting me in for the bad times as well as the good times, which I I was impressed by and I didn't think would necessarily happen. I thought she might just stop returning my calls or change her phone number or something at some point. And I'd warned my editor ahead of time that, that that could happen, but it didn't. She was, she was totally solid and open. Um, for the Atlantic, I did the same for the Atlantic where I learned about a specialty called child abuse pediatricians that can have an enormous amount of power in diagnosing child abuse. And the parents are left with basically no recourse. So I delved into the data and the reporting side of that first, and then started looking for families that had been through this who could illustrate that. Wired um, just came about from regular reporting. I'd been reading the docket yeah. and I was reading DOJ press releases just to see if there were any interesting cases. I noticed a couple of cyber stalking cases and this was among them. And so I, um, I started looking at the information. I was like, well, this is totally fascinating. <laughs> it's about a, a small town that gets where basically all of these girls become targets of a cyber stalker and none of them will talk about it. And it's, they feel real shame. And it, so it's both like a really interesting story for Wired, which obviously focus on tech, but also just like the shame and silence of these girls in this town. In a story like that, how do you balance the sort of true crimey mystery entertainment elements with the fact that it's about something pretty horrific? Yeah, I like to give the people involved a lot of space to talk and focus on one. And that I chose two girls to focus on named Mackenzie and May. And I wanted to give a narrative backdrop of this town because I'm not from a small town. I'm from a city. My husband is from a small town. And we were talking about because I didn't understand why the girls in this small town, like why their parents wouldn't have started a vigil or 
denounced this publicly. And, and he was talking about just the idea of this small town where everybody knows everybody, everybody knows your business, like you would keep it quiet. So I thought that was a really interesting backdrop too. So I wanted the victims to just have time to tell their stories. And so I did those in, in long chunks. Uh, and then in between, I did the sort of nitty gritty of the investigation and how they tried to track this down and how this, particularly this police detective and a USDOJ lawyer were, were trying to piece it together. The thing that I was struck rereading that story is how detailed you're able to be about how law enforcement eventually caught the perpetrator using some like pretty hyper modern, um, not quite hacking techniques, I guess surveillance techniques is probably what they are. Um, yeah, like the Secret Service agent who went undercover as a teenage girl to like <laughs> message with the perpetrator, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. He has teenage daughters who is like, so yeah, I like studied their I am language. So I would sound like a 16 year old. And stuff like, you know, this weird anonymous app, actually you can subpoena them and they will give the Apple ID, the Apple mm -hmm. ID, Apple will give up. I'm curious, like how public law enforcement is with those kind of techniques. And also in a situation like that, like how do you fact check how the police figured out it was this guy and these kind of things that are, are basically data correlations? Uh, so that a lot of that is in the court documents, if you read, and it's always on like page 300, I mean, not 347, but it's like deep in there after your eyes have glazed over or something like, oh, wait, that's how they did it. So yeah. I like when I'm doing a piece on a law enforcement investigation, I like to explain for readers exactly how they pieced it together. Sometimes it's simple. In that case, it's not where they're trying to triangulate. Is this the right guy we've got? He was using these hotspots because they have to enter all that information as part of a warrant usually, or at least as part of the charging documents or later on as part of the sentencing documents, often they're in there. For that story too, I often federal officials will not give interviews about stories on that because they were trying to spread the word that this is a problem. Cyber stalking is a problem and that victims shouldn't be ashamed, but should come forward. And the case was closed and the appeal was closed. So they were in that case willing to Justified questions about a sequence of things or something wasn't clear, or there were conflicting dates in a document. I was able to check that with the actual investigators. So what's your pandemic been like as a writer? Um, oh can you God. go out and do um, stories? <laughs> I, have, so I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, uh, so not great. Yeah. <laughs> they went into Zoom school in March, and so my husband and I, we both... Obviously, we're working from home and it was just like every day I'd be like, you got 10 minutes more of work yesterday. And he'd be like, no, 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 you got nine minutes on Tuesday. And like, um, so it's a bit of a mess. Uh, we got childcare in the summer that helped. But it's been, uh, you know, it's just hard not to have input in, in like I finally went to the Met on New Year's Eve just to see some art. And I almost cried like it had been so long since I'd had. There had been so much output during the pandemic and very little kind of restorative artistic input, like theater or singing or art or anything. Writing-wise, it's been like I didn't quite know what to expect business-wise, but there's all, I mean, there's just so many good things to write about. So <laughs> it's, it's been really busy, which is great. But trying to balance the novel writing with the journalism is always tricky. 
Well, um, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And that was the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our editor, thanks to her, is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Susan Peterson. And the show is brought to you by the good people at MailChimp. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.